0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey, everybody. It's Wednesday evening. Time for American Whiner on podcastdetroit.com. How the hell is everybody doing? My name is Alex. Joining me in studio today, uh, nice to see somebody face-to-face again for the second week in a row. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Jeremiah from Daily Detroit. How do you pronounce your last name? Stays. Stays. So in okay. the old country, back in Belgium, like I didn't – I not from the old country, but my grandfather apparently Americanized the pronunciation of the name from Stas to Stays. Uh. And this resulted in being the coolest kid in kindergarten for exactly two weeks when they were like, Jer, Jer, Jeremiah Stays in the entire class one. Because they thought that I would have to stay – after class and I already had gotten in trouble in my oh. first day of kindergarten, so that oh already God. got me points. What did you do? Nothing. I mean, it's just I was just Jeremiah's Days, so they thought I was. No, I mean, how'd you get in trouble? Well, they thought I was in trouble. Oh. That's all they needed to know. So that
0: was like that was like in Super Bad when McLovin pretends to get arrested because he thinks that it'll make him more attractive to the women. So. Exactly, except yeah.
1: I didn't intend it and I was five.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah, thanks for coming in man. Um you are uh the host one of the hosts of uh, Daily Detroit which is a podcast on podcastdetroit.com. Um you are a daily podcast. You do it uh, uh every day, uh, five days a week I should say. Yep. And uh uh you do it for a living. You quit yes. your day job recently to uh, and so we'll get into all that but uh, before we do I always ask the same question to begin the interview. The question is where were
1: you born? Hudson Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. So you are a Detroiter then. Absolutely. Uh, the The thing is about that though is that I almost didn't get the name that I have today. I mean Jeremiah is kind of a unique name. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think I'm Amish when they first see my emails. It is a
0: stereotypically Amish. Name. Right.
1: And I do like Weird Al Yankovic's version of Gangster's Paradise, which is Amish Paradise. Yeah. However, I could have ended up with a different name. My dad originally wanted to name me after a punk rock star. Who? Iggy, Iggy Pop. No,
0: that also from Michigan.
1: Absolutely. Right. So his idea was to name me Igor, so that I would be Iggy, so that therefore I would, you know, have a jump, head start on life. And my grandmother was like, "That's the worst idea ever." She literally chased down the paperwork across the hospital to change the name. So
0: he actually did it, and then your grandma called the person who had signed the paper, and like, next, uh-uh, like.
1: not this." Is that the, the so, mom overrides happening here? So
0: did she did she pick your name or who picked your name then?
1: Well, so the thing is, is that it was originally going to be Jeremy, but. I already have a lot of Jeremy's in the family. It's already confusing enough with the Jeremiah, but like, because I have aunts and uncles who just like run through the names mm-hmm. because, you know, they're a Catholic family on my mom's side. So they have all kinds of, like, they'll have like six names they go through to get to the right person. You know, when people get m- mad and they don't, they can't figure out which one of their kids or which one of their little cousins they're watching, you know, who did it.
0: Yeah, they yell Jeremy and five of them turn their head.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So. The decision was to go with Jeremiah, which is, I believe, like a great-grandfather from down in Maryland or something on my dad's side. But yeah, that that's how that happened. But that happened in like 15 minutes. That was like a 15-minute, what are we going to decide his name for the rest of his life? Mm-hmm. Because it can't be Iggy. It can't be Igor.
0: And let's go with a uh, biblical prophet who I believe he had something to do with like the foretelling of the destruction of several cities or something True, like that. True, and he was
1: always correct, but nobody listened to him, which is kind of how I feel <laughs> in my current job. Uh, So did you grow up in Detroit then or where'd you grow up? Tell me about your childhood. So I'm from the East side. I split my time between uh, the park over there and Indian village. My grandmother uh, what made sure – like you know, private school is expensive and we didn't have that kind of money. And so what my grandmother did to help my starving artist father and creative artist mother was to – OK. Instead of bringing for private school because we can't afford that, let me help out with your rent to get one street into the suburbs so you can go to a better school. But most of the time, like especially on the weekends, for a variety of reasons, I ended up staying with my grandmother. Oh, OK.
0: So – So where exactly did you end up going to school then? If you were one street over, like
1: what's – So that would be in gross point.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, which
1: I – you know, people can say whatever they want about it, but the education system there is great and it taught me an early lesson about the differences between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. Because my friends who literally were on the other side of the alley from me had none of the opportunities, even though my family made about the same amount of money. Yeah, my grandmother helped and she helped a lot throughout my my life, but – that one little move, that extra 150 bucks a month that my grandmother chipped in to get on the other side of the alley made a huge difference in my life trajectory. And I've never forgotten it since. And it's kind of informed a lot of the things that I've covered and, and talked about over the last 20 years because there is a have and there is a have not.
0: Definitely. Well, your grandma had such an – she had to do with your name being chosen and, 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 and Yeah, she's like I'm in on this. Her, if it wasn't for her you'd be named Iggy and you wouldn't have gone to Gross Point school. So that who knows, you'd be a completely different person. Like I know, said.
1: I would be Iggy. I wonder, hmm, I wonder if it'd be like Izzo, like Lizzo. Lizzo. I mean, Lizzo had a similar the um uh musician, the pop singer. Yeah, the yeah. Pop singer. So she actually around the same like a couple of years later but had a similar story where she had a grandma in Detroit and also went uh, cause people say, you know, she can't claim Detroit because when she was a child, a lot of times she was in the suburbs. I don't, I don't like to get into that whole thing. Cause I mean, the outside world, it's all Detroit, but right. I get it. Uh, I totally understand the pride. I get it. Uh, but it's a similar kind of situation where if you have a unique family situation, shall we say, you don't really get to pick where you land. And sometimes you don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of got to roll with it. And I think that's, that's a reality for a lot of people.
0: Definitely. Um, So you said your parents were artists. Uh, Yeah. Tell me about what they did for a living.
1: Well, so there's a difference between what they did for a living and what they describe themselves as. Oh, okay. So my dad used to be an artist who worked commercially and did those things until he realized that there was no room for him and his art in that. So he worked doing industrial design. He had a hand, as I understand it. Again, this is all as I understand it, right? I haven't dug into this. But as I understand it, he uh, had a hand in like designing um, like motorcycle parts and all kinds of like things that you would design in Detroit, right? Like automotive parts and all that kind of thing. But what he realized was doing it commercially burned him out to do it creatively. Mm. And so he made the decision to go get like a nine-to-five. He worked painting – he worked painting offices. He worked doing janitorial and maintenance and All of that kind of stuff to pay the bills and that was especially important after my mom passed on when I was 10 and he had to like you know carry more of that burden. Um, But it was something that he realized that the passion and creating art for the sake of art, it wasn't worth it to do it for a living. What he decided was take the skills that he learned because he was a muralist. He knew how to work with plaster. He knew like he could do all these maintenance things, take those skills and apply them. But the creativity and the art, he saved. He ended up learning to save for himself.
0: Okay. So what did he? So he he worked a whole bunch of different jobs. Oh
1: yeah, odd man, odd, yeah, total handyman, doing whatever you know, paid the bills. Mm-hmm.
0: But then he he's continued to be an artist of, of his own volition, just in his spare time. Then is what he.
1: Well, yeah, about and it. It. it's like that thing, you know. It's so funny because everyone talks about people like uh, Gary v, Gainer, v. Gary Vaynerchuk and. All of that stuff and like that like 7 to 11 hustle or whatever. And my dad was like kind of original on that but it was about his art, not about making money. For me, I would go to bed for school and wake up and there would be a whole new painting in our little apartment that we we shared. So we – when I grew up, I grew up in a one-bedroom and my mom and dad took over the living room, turned that into their bedroom. Mm -hmm. The dining room became a studio slash dining room. Then there was my bedroom, and then there was the kitchen, and that's it. That was the that was the apartment. What did your grandma do for a living? Oh, well, my grandmother, uh, she had done a variety of things. She did a lot of volunteering and things like that. But she was somebody who's from a different age. She was born in nineteen oh nine, I want to say off the top of my head. And she, although she worked jobs occasionally, she never had a career. Mm-hmm. So she was basically the wife of a retired um, American Motors worker. Oh, okay. So from the golden
0: age then of the of the American Motors worker.
1: Well, yeah, I mean she grew up. Although she had her own things that she did, she volunteered with all kinds of things. You know, she was the kind of person who literally had to run away from her family to Canada to go to college because her parents forbade it. No shit. Where where in Canada? Montreal, Montreal, and so that's where she met my grandfather, who was actually an adoptee from Belgium. Really? And, yeah.
0: And so this is your paternal, uh, grandparents yeah, yep. then. Okay. Yep. Um. So
1: she, she's in Montreal. What did she end up going to college for then? I don't know all the details. I mean it's a long time ago and she's long gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know that she always applied herself to volunteer purposes, to nonprofits, to fundraising, to all of that kind of stuff. She was somebody who uh, knew how to bring people together.
0: And she took care of her son and her son's family as well.
1: She, well, yeah. I mean she yeah. knew how to manage things. She didn't have a lot – but she knew how to manage things, and she knew how to take care of what she had.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what kind of student were you? Uh, good, what I wanted to be, but most of the time I didn't give a care. I didn't. I didn't care.
0: Yeah, like yeah.
1: I couldn't. If I there were things I was good at, and there were things I was terrible at. Um, a lot of it too was I ended up prioritizing things because by the time I got into say, when you talk about a student life, right? I don't really think about like elementary and middle school, but I think about like high school. By that time, I was working forty hours a week. I was paying bills at my house. I was also doing my studies, so I ended up being in a mode where I ended up choosing – probably wasn't the wisest thing, but I had to choose where I spent my time. Um, Doing homework at home wasn't a thing for me, and so I threw myself into work, and then I would stay an extra couple hours, and I would do my homework when I could when I wasn't too tired. What Uh, what did you do? What was your job? So I did odd jobs. I did everything from uh, working in landscaping – I ended up actually finding out a way to become an intern – get an internship uh, when I was in high school and I did one internship as well with the uh, school itself, like doing television and audio production and Mm. helping putting together their telethon and all of that kind of stuff, which ended up being a great opportunity to kind of springboard me into what I do now. But I also look back on it and there's a lot of things that – you know, like I went – I was fortunate because you know what? There's a lot of people – who had it a lot harder than I did. I was fortunate to have that safety net of so many people around me to make it so that I didn't fall too far off the path.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's incredible though.
0: How old were you when you started working then and going to school? Like how you, you,
1: I mean, I had my first job when I was 13. 13. Wow. And I started working 40 hours a week, not I shouldn't have but I did because I had to because I had bills to pay. Mm-hmm. I started working forty hours a week when I was sixteen.
0: So what was that like then? Being because most teenagers don't have to to deal with that that type of burden, you know, de- helping to pay the bills or anything. I didn't. I had to. You just. It, it didn't, you had
1: to. Like that's the thing I think people don't realize is like when you're in the moment, if you actually are faced with that situation, you just do it because you have to. You try to make the most of it. You try to enjoy whatever you can. But then you just realize at times you just. Have to.
0: So throughout all this, though, your work and you said you had this internship at the school where you were doing uh, TV and product, production and things like that. Uh, did, did you start to uh, start to think to yourself, I think this is what I want, might want to do for a living?
1: I mean, I think the first telethon that we produced and I was like way down on the totem pole. I knew that storytelling was the way to go and that I really enjoyed it. And I had a knack for the tech side. But also could do a little bit more than that and I also realized that if you're willing – like that it's hard work but if you're willing to do it, you can make some really great stuff and also meet really interesting and cool people. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, anything that you do is about the people that are involved in it. You can have the worst job in the world but if you're working with good people – then it's a great job because at the end of the day, like so many jobs, like what you do every day is terrible or annoying or whatever, but it's the people that make it worth it.
0: You're absolutely right. My current job right now uh, is cleaning toilets. I'm a janitor at Kensington. And, but the people that I work with and the scenery make it so, so I you're out at Kensington
1: th- Metro Park yep okay yep. I wasn't sure if you're talking about Kensington Metro Park or I think there's a church out there there's a few other things
0: yeah no it's the Metro park um, okay and uh, so yeah you're absolutely right it's it's the the people are are I had a hospice job for three years and the people you know there were you know it was a real there was drama but uh but it was an awful lot like uh you know what I imagine uh you know going into boot camp is you know it's like you you just you You get a uh, a camaraderie with these guys because you're all going through the same thing at the same time.
1: Well, I learned that because my uncle owned a window washing business and that's where I would always go to if I needed to make money. Um, You could always – like in my family, like the rule to me and how I was raised is that you don't ask for handouts. You just go work. Mm -hmm. And so it was always – and my uncle Mark um, was somebody who it's like, well, you're not going to get paid very much but you'll always have an opportunity to do something. And that's where I learned the concept of beautiful work. And that's what you're talking about. Like what you're doing, what so many of us who are listening to this, I think have experienced is that beautiful work where you're doing something you can look at and be like, yes, I did that. I completed it. Like one of the most frustrating things about working in the digital space today is that it's not like building a deck or cleaning a toilet or any of those things. Cause it's never done. Mm -hmm. Like what I do is never done. And That to an extent is kind of frustrating. To me, I feel like the people who have got that thing where they can look at it and be like, okay, I built a house, I cleaned a toilet, I did that. It's beautiful work. And that's the kind of work that, frankly, we need to value more of in this country.
0: I agree. Yeah, it's the, the trades, you know, like it's because, you know, the college th- boom happened in the middle of the 20th century. I think that's that kind of.
1: How many people do you know are going, are working where they went to college or what they went to college for?
0: Uh, Almost nobody. Almost nobody. I can count on my hand the amount of people
1: who are doing that. So I've always wondered this. Why don't we change the college system to teach people how to learn?
0: That's a good, you know, I just had a teacher on uh, last uh last week and uh i asked her about that she's not a college teacher she's, she teaches middle school but she said uh as i said google has kind of ruined the whole fact based teaching uh method or whatever it's it's uh, and, and i said it it should be more about how do you learn now and 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 uh, how to think rather than what to think or what to learn
1: well even back in the day like with the library and things like that right yeah. so all those things are are are, are At your fingertips, I think about my formative library experience was – so you've heard of pimento loaf, right? Like
0: Pimento loaf. I've heard the term but but refresh my memory. It's like old
1: school. I don't know if it's maybe the little bit of age difference between us or whatever. But it used to – it's a thing that you would get um, at the liquor store or whatever. Um, Also, you you can get them at supermarkets. And it's like a ham loaf, a chopped ham loaf that also had like pimentos in it and little pickles and little – Things like little vegetable bits. It was a it was a thing especially like in the like 90s, 80s and 90s and I always wondered where is the pimento pig? Pimento. <laughs> and the beautiful thing that the librarian did that I will always be thankful for is they didn't laugh at me and tell me there was no pimento pig. Mm-hmm. They let me figure out there was no pimento pig.
0: They just said, here's a book on pigs. Well,
1: no, here's the section on pigs. uh, Here's where you're going to find out about all the kinds of pigs and how pigs – where they came from. uh, And then look at and go, oh, there is – like you come to the realization. And I went up and I'm like, there is no pimento pig. And then it was like – that's kind of like the foundation of everything going forward when you realize there is no pimento pig. What else is there?
0: yeah, exactly. It's like finding out there's no Santa Claus in a way, you in a, know, <laughs> in a very weird way, yeah, yeah, but
1: and that's where I look like look at it's it's more people should have those kind of kind of experiences mm-hmm. definitely i i I'm trying
0: to think I love the library. I was at the library today. I spend time at the library oh, as, the as library much as I is amazing. Can. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of like a experience that I had where somebody, rather than mock me for not knowing something, they just kind of let me figure it out for myself. I'm sure it's happened, um, but nothing's nothing's coming to mind at the moment. But um, I wanted to uh, ask you. Let's just jump right into Daily Detroit, man, because like this is this is your you don't life. You want to you talk
1: know? about pimento pigs more?
0: We we can if you want, man. <laughs> You're good, the I'm guest. Uh, but because um, you know, you were in high school, you were already busting your ass way more than than most teenagers have to right and uh so but i was lucky i'll fully
1: say that i was lucky to have the opportunity to bust my ass
0: yeah you 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 had you had opportunities um but you're doing this and you're slowly starting to think like hey i think i might want to go in this particular direction uh so i know this is a huge jump from then to now oh yeah let's just
1: like fast forward a couple of decades yeah yeah. (laughs) like a bunch of broken relationships yeah let's just go through
0: it but um but we can we'll go back to that but i just want to know like because what you're doing now, could you tell me about – and this is how I'll start it. Tell me about deciding to quit your job and do this this Daily Detroit uh, for a living.
1: You clean toilets, so you'll appreciate this. You either shit or get off the pot. Yeah, yeah. There's a point when a project gets to a size where you have to decide, am I doing this or is it time to walk away? And people don't realize that. Like when you do a project, success creates – Responsibilities and decisions that I think a lot of people, especially independent creators, don't realize like happen because success creates other issues. It creates other problems. It creates more demands. It was something where either I pay the respect that my corporate job at the time deserved and i was doing it i was doing both right like and for me i was fortunate we had we've always had people that we've worked with at daily detroit we've always been a group of people that's i think a big thing for independent media projects to realize is that you cannot do this alone mm-hmm. doing it alone is a road to like lots of tired nights and disaster and you're not going to have the best project products like like back then i remember janice i remember stephanie i remember pat i remember joel like all these people who i you know still talk to today uh, some of them more than others, many of them have moved on to some great jobs. But it was like, wow, this team is like bringing things together and it's all all hobbyed. It's all an hour here, an hour there, picking up a thing because we just love telling stories about Detroit and Metro Detroit. Um, And but it was this thing where, all right, are we going to do this or am I going to be corporate guy? Mm-hmm. And I had just gotten a uh, award from my work. And it was one of those things of where I went to my boss and I was like, you know, this is the situation. And she's like, you have to go. I mean, you can she's like, you can stay here, but you have to go. She encouraged you to do it. Absolutely. Because she did it herself. And that's the thing is like anybody who doesn't want anybody who doesn't want you to jump for their own reasons. They're not really your friend. Yes, that is true. You know, you've got to enable people. See, like our thing in life, all the things that we do, we're, we're only here because of the people around us. And what you what I look at is that it's important to whoever you're working with, raise them up, find a way to make something better, find a way to open a door, find a way to whatever. Because if it if we don't help each other, then like, what is the adva- what is the advantage that humans have? Like humans we're terrible in the wilderness, Like you put us out in the wilderness. We are not well adapted physically for any of that stuff. Nope. But what do we have? We have each other and we have our smarts and we have our ways to build things up. And I think with the comforts of modern life, we have gotten to this point where we tear each other down. And that is like we wonder why our country has so many divisions and everything. We have to look in the mirror.
0: Yeah, definitely. And
1: that's what I that's what I see. We have to build each other up. Not that everything's perfect. Not that everything's Pollyanna. Not that, you know. Every decision, but but we got it. We've got to look at it from a a greater humanist perspective.
0: Not everyone is a fucking competitor. That's what it is. If that's what I. And even I, if
1: they are, sometimes they're your co op. You're you know you're like your cooperation and competitor. Because yeah. here's the thing, like in so many industries, uh, media is one of them. But uh, in so many industries, especially in a town like Detroit. And Detroit is a big city, but not that big. I like to think of it as the uh, biggest small town you 'll ever meet that 's something I heard once from I think from Jeanette Pierce, who used to do the tours at Detroit Experience Factory and all that stuff it 's the biggest small town you 'll ever meet, and I think that 's completely true because in any industry that you 're working in, you never know when the cards will be shuffled again. Any place that you work i don 't care like especially if you think about the auto industry like although it 's a big industry it 's only so big right there 's only so many companies. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to look at it from a a little bit bigger picture perspective. What was your job that you left to to do Daily Detroit? Uh, I headed up digital communications and strategy for um, Strategic Staffing Solutions. This is a uh what was the t- number 350 400 million something like that um staffing and i global staffing it firm mm. i basically had the rank of a branch manager but for the internet for digital and that's a big thing when you're dealing with recruiting when you're dealing with 3000 employees spread across the globe when you're dealing with budgets advertising um you know dealing with sponsorships from everything from detroit city fc to you know a local paper in lithuania it was An amazing experience and something where it also like will drain you, but it's worth it because at the end of the day, I mean, no company's perfect, and I'm not gonna ever say that. But at the end of the day, having a job where your job is to help people get jobs doesn't suck. Definitely. Well, how long were you doing that for then? So, geez, four years, four and a half years, something like that. Before that, she before that I uh worked with the Detroit Regional News Hub to helping tell the Detroit story. This was before all of like the Gilbertistan stuff happened. Uh, I love you guys over there at Bedrock. I mean, I just, I got jokes. Um, I think they do a lot of interesting things over there. Um, and they kind of also took over a lot of the storytelling about what's happening with Detroit. So before Gilbert moved in, it was a project by Business Leaders from Michigan to, and a very small project, to use the internet, to use The tools around us to work with journalists, influencers, media to tell the rest of the story about Detroit, not not the positive. And that's actually one of the reasons why I didn't get funded like the second time around is that what happened was is all the funders wanted it to be positive all the time. And that's a bullshit story. Mm -hmm. Like, I love Detroit, but shit's wrong here, too. Right. And so if you're going to try to deal with the fear, uncertainty of doubt of Detroit, you have to tell the truth. You have to not bullshit people.
0: And the truth includes things that people might not want to hear or have told or things like that. Right.
1: right? Like, yes, the, the this happened and this is what's going on here. And also this is happening. And that's one of the things that experience really drove me to understand. The thing that frustrates me the most about the Internet, what ended up actually driving us to creating a podcast, was there has to be nuance in a conversation. And online, people – online, the only thing that works in the algorithm – our one thought takes, and not it's it's. I feel this way. I'm very strong about this. Like, and this is the way it is. And you know, the number one thing to drive sharing is when people are reaffirming their own identity. They share on the internet not because it's truth, not because it's fact, not because it pushes the conversation forward. Well, most people don't. Most people share on the internet because it reaffirms their own identity. It tells you something about them.
0: Mm-hmm. It 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 makes them feel. Good being part of a group or Which is part human of a nature, nature, right? We yeah. can't, we
1: can't fight human nature. That's the reality, mm-hmm. but the format enhances it. The algorithm enhances it. One of the things that's beautiful about podcasting is that it's opt in. If you have decided for some ungodly reason to tune into daily Detroit or to tune into American wine you've made a conscious choice. And after about one or two episodes, you know what the hell's going on. So, you know, like you're part of the bus, you're on the bus, you're, you're on for the ride. And that's where we can make push Detroit's conversation forward much better and together and make the room the right size. There's a concept in media called you know called that you have to fit your message for the room. and when you have a show that is huge that every like, that everybody on Facebook like is a part of well, the room's very big, and you have to make that conversation like that conversation doesn't go where it should mm-hmm. right? You can't get into the nooks and crannies when you've got something. That's kind of the beauty of podcasting. And I hope it always stays. I don't know if it will. I feel like that used to be the beauty of Twitter back in the day. Twitter used to be awesome. It did. Really? It was amazing. I I didn't know that. Oh, Twitter (laughs) was great back in the day. I mean, it was something where – like did you know we actually had tweet-ups here in Detroit? No. We had this thing called Tweet Tea in like three different locations. We had three different places in Metro Detroit. I, for a while, hosted one of them where people on Twitter got together in person every month – And just chatted about whatever. really. And then they'd all tweet about it later.
0: And how – because Twitter started in, what, 2007, 2008? Something like that.
1: It's in those earlier years. But, Mm yeah, it was beautiful. I still have friends today from those tweet-ups. I have from that tweet-tea thing. I I still know people today that, like, I was just talking to someone. I was unfortunately uh, at a funeral last week. And the person across the way, you know what, also hosted a tweet-tea. That's how small this town is. And it also is the kind of the beauty of of conversations, of putting people together, of of building bonds in person. And and that's part of the beauty of podcasting. It's no, we're not in person. But you know me, I know you. Um, we can have a this conversation can't happen on Facebook. This conversation can't happen right now on Twitter. It used to, in a way. Um, but I don't even outside of my work, I don't tweet anymore.
0: No, and, and the thing with podcasting too is like there's the freedom of being on the internet and not having – like terrestrial radio has all the restrictions of terrestrial radio where you can only say certain things and there's regulations on what you can it's, talk about. And- but it's
1: not just about what you say, all right? It's not just about the swear words. It's not just about George Carlin's seven things you're not supposed to say. It's about the format. It's about the incentives and it's about how it is presented as a median. You know, You look at a commercial radio clock. And if you draw a circle, this is how you program like audio to me is you draw a circle and you say, here's your clock. This is how long your whole show is going to be. And then you have to hit posts and especially in commercial radio. And I'll admit that I'm like a public radio fan. Donate to your local public radio station. They're wonderful. Um, But you look at your clock and you say, oh, wow, how much of this is ads for like gold and ads for things that scary that make money off of scaring the shit out of you. Mm -hmm. Right. Turn on the radio and see how many things that are like, your world is terrible and you have to buy your way out of it. That's a perfect
0: way of putting a lot of advertisement to your world is your life sucks. Our product will help you. That's the that's the message. Right. And, and, And
1: that's the barbarians at the gates of podcasting. And you see the stuff that's been really successful, like extremely successful. You look at like and it's a it's a tired example, not because he isn't he isn't like an accomplished person. But like you look at the Joe Rogan show.
0: Yep. He right. Is the- like I
1: think about, I get an idea that you're that kind of Joe Rogan, Mark Maron, that kind of thing. Like that's not a that's a whole different kind of vibe that would never happen on terrestrial radio
0: definitely and they talk about that all the time they they're when it comes to podcasting they're like we would never be able to to sit down just for an hour straight and just talk as humans and get in like you said the nooks and crannies
1: and you of- have great conversations whether it's neil degrasse tyson or or even people like ben shapiro or people i don't agree with or agree with like it, it's something you can see the humanity of folks mm-hmm. locally a great example of the podcast being the radio show and is that uh, I firmly believe that Mike Villeneuve's podcast, Always Aggravated, is much better than his on-air radio show. In part, that's because the Lions and the Red Wings, well, and the Tigers, all of Detroit sports is a dumpster (laughs) fire right now. So it's got to be really frustrating to be him, to talk about, like, what is your job every day? Talk about four teams that, like, literally have set themselves on fire Mm -hmm. and shit the bed. Like, that has got to be a terrible job, number one. So I get that he's only got so much to work with. But you got so many commercials. You got so many other things always aggravated, although it's, you know, it's a a very catchy name for what it is. In reality, it's like, wow, I really liked his recipes about like his uh, tailgating recipes and how to throw the best tailgate and how to like how to pronounce provolone or provolone. Like, how does he do that? Like, it's these insights to the rest of the team, like uh, Roberto and his music likes and Sully and wanting to go to the PGA tour. Like, this was a great conversation that I liked. So Sully's a younger guy on that show, and talks about like, well, I really want to go to the PJ tour, and other people don't think I should. And it was a great like life lesson thing where it's like, dude, you're in your early twenties, go, go now. You you won't want to go again, but go once because you want to do this. Because ten years from now, you're not going to have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's a much better show to me than being like, blah blah blah, this sucks, like that's not. I know that works in mainstream radio. Like I'm fully aware. I'm fully aware. Like as somebody who produces a lot of content that's more of the public media, like on Detroit Public Television, I do segments with my colleague Sven Gustafson for One Detroit. Like as somebody who's fully steeped in that maybe slower style of production. But like I know that like yelling at people works. But it's not good for your soul, and who the hell wants to do that all day?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a fine line between, but it makes money, right? So it's like in and, theory, yeah. But the, I mean,
1: everything's changing now, right? It, yeah, it does. It
0: hopefully, I mean, because it's I think people are are getting burned out on on the way things things are. I think they've been burned out for a while.
1: I think there's a generational gap there. I think some mm-hmm. people are burned out, but I also think like our generation, to an extent, looks at things differently. We question things. We grew up in a world where like our our parents worked their asses off for houses in my case it's a little different because we never owned a house but like lots of my friends like owned houses like their parents worked their ass off did a bunch of things and then they lost it all through no fault of their own
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: that's going to make you really not trust the system now isn't it yeah that's going to make you think like what should be my priorities
0: and it's like and it i mean and now we're we're a decade removed from that cataclysm you know so it's it's like we've already uh we're in a completely different world now, you know. I mean, ten years before the recession was the '90s, and when fucking when our parents bought the houses and everybody was doing amazing, right? Know? And so.
1: the '90s had that beautiful thing where people made money and things weren't insanely expensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like that's a beautiful. That was something that was really good for just people, and I think we need to get back to. I think that's part of like, although I I have my own political beliefs that are not mainstream whatsoever. Uh, to me. That's the root of the discontent you're seeing on the left and the right. It's that we do need a fair deal for everyone. We need to look at and go, why isn't the system working for me? Why isn't this system looking out for the rest of us? And you could do it from a left perspective or a right perspective, but the concern there is still the same. It's the same concern Mm -hmm. that how you get there is the left and the right. Definitely. Um, Tell me about Daily Detroit. How did it start? Like what was the – what was the genesis of it? Too much bourbon. Too much bourbon. Oh. Too much whiskey. Ah. Uh, that's what happens when – so I used to live near uh, Nancy – Cheers. Whiz- <laughs> <laughs> Should have grabbed one on the way in here. But – um, so I used to live near Nancy Whiskey in North Corktown and my friends and I all like writer types, creative types, artist types – Um, And just for reference, when was this? When did this start? So I look back and, oh, geez. Well, I worked with a project before that was a hobby thing eh, five-ish years ago, four and a half. So this
0: is even before you got the job that you ended up leaving to –
1: Oh, yeah. It was a hobby. It was mm -hmm. a hobby. It was something that we – you know, it's something that was just about like, hey, these are cool things happening. Here's a Facebook page. Let's have fun with this. Like that's that's what it was. Mm -hmm. You know? It was – and it, but it was something that a few like a while into that and I was working corporate and so we're all so were so we all my friends um not all of them but like they were working jobs one way or another um and well let's do a website why not well we're not this or that whose permission do we need we need no one's permission to just be like yes we're going to do this and you know we came i came from a world working at the Detroit regional news hub where it was like well, I we need to do a prospectus and this or we need to make this happen or what about this? Just just make a damn website. And we did it. And we did it over way too many whiskeys and bourbons on the stage at Nancy Whiskey for version one. And people liked it. And it's like, oh, crap. What happens now? Well, did, how long did it take you to to notice like people like this? So the website happened after the Facebook page. And after the Facebook – for the Facebook page, it was when, when we first hit 10,000 fans. It's like, oh – because it was something where we had a, we have a, we we've had a lot of edge in the past, and we're able to bring more of it back now with the podcast. Because things just don't share on the internet like they did even five years ago. Mm-hmm. Like it just things have changed. The algorithm has changed. the 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 tone of the country has changed. Um, but it, it's something where it was like, wow, okay. People are sharing memes. People are sharing like stories. We we throw stuff out there. It was it kind of like the the golden age of all of this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was like well, and then we got lots of pushback from the establishment, going, "Well, what gives you the right to do that? Or what can you do?" And blah blah blah. It's like because these people had put had all these careers, and not that we didn't have great writers, not that we didn't have people who had journalism backgrounds, not that we don't today. We still do. Right. Like my co-host is a journalist with a J who worked at the Oakland Press and the Associated Press. And he still, you know, he's written, you know, he writes for Autoblog now and does all of this, you know, really great work. But like it was something where people were were like, well, how can you do this? How can you how can you get traffic? Blah, blah, blah. Like All these things were like so hard and it just comes down to make interesting shit. Mm hmm. Like everyone overthinks these things and they go, well, we need a strategy for whatever. And yeah, you need a content strategy and yeah, you need to think about these things. But it's not something you spend like weeks on. You just go do and see what people like. If they don't like it, you know, because no one clicks on the link. You know what? You just look at it and you've got to be humble and say, "Okay, there's things that I want to do for the sake of art and you should keep that on a shelf and you should do them and do them for your heart and whatever you want to do. But if you're trying to build something where it's like audience or it resonates with people, there's tons of data. You put it out there. If it sucks, it sucks. Some of your stuff, a lot of your stuff, most of your stuff, most of our stuff is going to suck. And then sometimes like, oh, wow. okay, that works. All right. Let's do more of that. Or what is it about this that 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 spread? And so it was something where we just picked up independent voices. We highlighted folks. We didn't really, though, find our stride. Until the podcast like we've always done lists really well. We've always done like event coverage really well. We've had some some great stuff, um, some really thoughtful stuff too. Like we do the Mackinac Policy Conference every year talking to political leaders and and giving an edge to the coverage where it's like, well, this is really – you need to care about your community. And What we realize is that our audience, which is younger than your standard like media news audience, like most people who like are into newspapers and things, like your average CNN watcher is older. You know, you got people in their 50s and 60s and not that we don't have some of those, but the majority of our audience is under 40, the vast majority and 35 and 30. And you get into that area where it's like a whole different way of like how people consume stuff. So to be honest, although we've had some early successes and we really didn't find our stride until we started finding the podcast.
0: And how did the podcast
1: start? Because we wanted to tell stories because we knew that what we had to do to make it on the Internet was trash mm-hmm. like we knew like i know what it takes to make something go they have a good chance not for sure but have a good chance of spreading and it's stuff that doesn't push the conversation forward and i enjoy it don't get me wrong like i feel no guilt over sharing excellent places to eat pizza and the hottest thing about a new bakery you've never heard of don't get me wrong like i enjoy that stuff i if you can see me i i am not a <laughs> you know, I've enjoyed a lot of Detroit's food over the years. But if you want to get into something deeper, if you want to look at what's happening in the city, if you want to look at development, if you want to look at the why, if you want to look at the data, the the internet, like social media is not for that. Social media, like if you think about the, the kinds of stories, the same thing that you loved about podcasting, you talked about like that conversation. You can do that same thing and it can, I think, save local journalism. Because a big part of it is is that you see, like I don't know how much you know about like the media landscape and like the dumpster fire that is the finances of so much local journalism across the country. This is not just a Detroit thing. Yeah, shit's falling apart all over the place. Yeah, yeah like all over the place. And why? Because the business model is screwed. Mm-hmm. Why is the business model screwed? Yes, in part you've got companies that are not like putting journalism first, but they're also mega corporations. What else do you expect? That's what they do, right? Like it's what they do. They they maximize shareholder return. They're always going to do that. But also – and this is the thing that's hard to realize as a gut check. As much as I love opening up a Sunday paper and like looking at it and finding stories and all that stuff and reading it and enjoying it, the way people consume media has changed because their lifestyles have changed. People don't read anymore. Mm -hmm. The most you can get on an article online unless you're really lucky is like three swipes of your phone. That's the amount of attention people have in their day for reading. But if you can tell a story where they can take it with them and you can add context and you can make their life better, you can give them – surprise them, tell them something they never knew about or connect them to their community with events or anything else, like then you can be a part of their lives and you can bring back that routine connection to your community. And that at the heart is what we started Daily Detroit to do but didn't know how to do it until we developed the the podcast, which is frankly our second podcast. Our first podcast was one we enjoyed doing a lot and got a little bit of traction, but we realized that there wasn't – there wasn't a need for it. You've got to produce something that people can really add to their day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So did, did Podcast Detroit come uh, after you decided to do the podcast or was it be- – I mean – We've always been drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Like there was no like plan hot hatched. I remember famously saying, oh, we'll never do a podcast. I hate those words. Um, well, how long have you been doing the podcast now? Uh, this podcast, we're at episode 340 something. Mm-hmm. Um, then before that, we had a podcast that we did 60 episodes, but that was a weekly show. OK. Um, and it's still out there on the internet, the happy hour. We love that that beautiful little thing that we created. But it was something that was. A great training ground, but it wasn't the thing that would take us to the next level. Mm -hmm. So we bid it adieu. Actually, we recorded the last episode a little while. Like we, we recorded a final episode and like talked about like why, why we moved away from it because we found that it wasn't the right thing. And now it's just daily Detroit. That's, that's yeah. So what life. we do? I mean, Lord knows I've got enough to do on a daily basis, and so does the team. Well, how many people are working with that now? How many so there's are myself. The there's Cheyenne who does editing uh, and occasional co-hosting. Uh, Sven, uh, occasional technical support by none other than Randy Walker, and you know Randy. I do, yeah. Um, so that's kind of like a cousin that we both sh- that both Podcast Detroit and us share. Um. But yeah, our team is small. Uh, we've got a couple other volu- like a couple other like part-time people, uh, a couple of volunteers actually who just like love to like support the show. Uh, but yeah, it's a really small team. The average daily podcast, you know, you got six or 10 or 12 full-time people. We're nowhere near that. But we still push it out every single day as an independent uh, project. And and
0: how long has it been since you've been doing it just as your day job since you quit the, the – little property? less than two years. So you've been at it for two years. So this yeah. is – wow. So um, where where do you want it to go then? I mean you've already been at it for – like you said, like five years ago is when you conceived the idea. So where where do you want it to go? Like ideally, where would you want to be in another
1: five years? I it? mean my focus at home is always Detroit. and And what we need to do is we need to connect people to their community. That's the job to be done, to make it so that people learn more about what they're doing so that – to engage people with stories so that you know they know about the things that are happening in their community and know how they can take action about them or learn more or be curious about it. And we still got a lot of work to do. I want to see us in a position where for a good number of Detroiters, we're in the same spot that that morning paper used to be. It's going to be a different routine, but in that spot where it's it's relied on as something that people can use and makes their day just a little bit better. And and so it's been a a great journey kind of figuring that out and growing it.
0: Uh what and I'll I'll, I'll use that to jump into this next question which is uh what is going on in Detroit right now that that you would like people to know about? Like what's, so, what's uh, a couple stories.
1: Hmm. So what side? Do you want to talk about fun stuff? Do you want to talk about serious stuff? Let's talk about the serious stuff. I'm I'm curious. The serious stuff. Okay. Oh, geez. Where to start? Where to start? I think one thing that over the last week has been an interesting thing because I didn't realize the pushback I would get from my audience on this. Did you know that downtown, that, did you know that the city of Ferndale has a higher population density than greater downtown Detroit? I did not know that. Yeah, it's true. It's a 5,000 some people per square mile in Ferndale and 4,000 some in, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head. It's on, it's on Daily Detroit, but there's, A major difference there and everyone says, oh, downtown Detroit, there's all these people. But there is not. I was just at this press conference. When it comes to residential density, it's not there. I was at a press press event today for Greektown. Half of Greektown is surface parking lots. Mm -hmm. Nobody can live on a surface parking lot. And so we have to really rethink about what does development mean in Detroit because so many people like – because you've got a couple of different audiences in the world or in, in the metro Detroit world. A lot of people who talk about Detroit don't actually live there. Now, I live in the city. Um, I have for a long time. I've lived in various neighborhoods. And what I've learned is, is that because of just the raw numbers, right, there's more people who live in the suburbs. There's more people who have internet access in the suburbs. The conversation about Detroit is dominated by folks who don't live there. And so it gets dominated by folks who are like, well, where am I going to park? What am I going to do? And, yeah, parking's important. You got to park somewhere right now. We don't have real mass transit yet. We need it. We desperately need it. But then what you realize is that all that parking is choking off the potential of neighborhoods, that all that parking is choking off the potential of the District Detroit. And that's the Illich family's own fault. You know, that whole area by the arena. And there is this idea that as Detroiters, we should just beg for scraps and be thankful for any little development that happens. But some of the stuff that happens in Detroit, you'd never tolerate in your suburb in Warren or Farmington or Novi. You would never allow that to happen next to your house. So why should I allow it next to mine? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Right. Because there is that ingrained thing. Well, you're Detroit. Well, and there's a lot of layers to that and there's a lot of ugly layers to that and ugly layers that – Tie into everything because I'm, I'm, it's still the case. It's something that Charlie Ledef said a while ago. And I do agree with him on this is that race ties into almost every single story in Metro Detroit in one way or another. And it's something that we don't want to talk about. Like people literally say, I don't want to talk about it Until we do. Nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically talking uh, a story we did. It was just an animated GIF or GIF. What is it? Is it GIF or GIF to
0: you? I've always said GIF.
1: All right. So uh, in this room, we'll say GIF. An animated GIF, and all it showed was population change, demographic change, racial demographic change between the city and the suburbs. All it was is ten years that showed that um African Americans had spread out of the city, that many neighborhoods were becoming more diverse, and it freaked people out. And when was this? When did this like, GIF like three years ago or something? We made this out of some data that came out from the American Community Survey, which is something from the US Census. And just animated it. It was up on their website but we animated it. That little bit of animation changed the conversation because it made people – it it made people really think. Some people really think in a positive way like, wow, my community is changing. Other people going, wow, my community is changing. What does that mean for me? That's when I realized like l- those kind of experiences helped me realize why it's no leap that Donald Trump is president.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because
1: like like that's a real feeling in this region – And here where it's like people think diversity is that there is one person of color on their block. That's not diversity. That's a black guy on your street. Diversity is when a minority group has enough power to make decisions. Or to be
0: part of decisions. All right. To be part
1: of decisions. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to be – to tolerate – I'm putting air quotes – to be tolerant when you still control all the keys. Mm -hmm. When you don't control all the keys anymore, that changes things. And, and I saw that, and that's something that is like underlying a lot of Metro Detroit. Oh, you know, so here's a story. My uncle was for a short time in the 80s the mayor of Sterling Heights. Really? And he's one of the people who helped sign off on the superization and pushed for the super expanding of Mound Road. There are parts of Mound Road that don't have sidewalks or were built without sidewalks. You know why they were built without sidewalks?
0: Well, I do not know.
1: To keep the blacks out.
0: I, I, I could have guessed that would be the end. And to that's do with because that, yeah. of my uncle
1: mm-hmm. who excommunicated my aunt who married a black man
0: mm-hmm.
1: who literally would not allow my aunt into his house even after she got divorced because she had black children. And that's our elected leadership at that time. Mm-hmm. And some of those folks still are around. Yeah. And those ideas are still around, not just in one place, but like hiding away in the recesses.
0: Well, hell, we have a freaking city named it named for. It was it was this is where we're where we're gonna put the black people. Oh,
1: don't even get me started on Henry Ford. Like yeah. he was a brilliant inventor, but a terrible human. Yeah, terrible. Like the stuff. Do you know where the 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 idea of a melting pot comes from? I do not. Okay, so you've heard the term. Well, America's a melting pot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this comes from an actual fucking pot that Henry Ford built, and he would take the immigrants, and he would teach them how to be American, so to conform. Uh. Right. This is where the root of all of this is one of the roots of like all of our like fear, like the fear of the other is ingrained in American culture. We just don't want to admit it like was so what he would do with his squad that would like imagine working a place where your employer literally sent out squads to inspect your house. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. That's what Henry Ford did. That's one of the top leaders and like people that we revere and we have statues of here. That's who he was. He would send people to immigrants' houses and inspect them or blacks' houses or other folks to make sure that you conformed to his social standards. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, so the melting pot, the melting pot is where people would be immigrants or come from or even black or wherever they would come from their own, their own cultures. And they would go into the melting pot wearing extra, like their, like, you know, stereotypical gear. If they were from, in my case, in my, my family on my mom's side, Slovak. So. The garb of Slovakia and their their people, they would there would be this huge ceremony where all these people would get around and they would climb into the pot wearing their gear, and inside was a straw hat and an American outfit with an American flag, and and you had to change your outfit, and you came out of the melting pot and you looked like Henry Ford fucking wanted you to. What the fuck? So, wait a minute, like
0: this was like a giant cauldron. Yes. The- where where did he keep it?
1: Like in Dearborn, dude. In Dearborn, I believe it was in Dearborn. I'd have to double check that, but I remember Where, I've seen
0: the photos. And and the idea is that immigrants one by one would get into this pot. Yes, there would be an outfit in there for them. They'd yes, put the outfit
1: on. Come, that's their graduation ceremony. Oh my god! And a straw fucking hat. Yes, like that a straw one. fucking hat. <laughs> that is what our fucking culture that's is like, based on.
0: That's like comical though nowadays. Like it's the, comical, the, but the,
1: like. That was less than a hundred years ago. I know people who were alive during that time and still think that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you know where Henry Ford's buried now, right? Yeah. Off of Joy Road. So yeah, that's, like there's he, some poetic justice there, There is right? some poetic
1: justice. I think he's near the Obama gas station, isn't he?
0: He is. It's right down that's the road. That's fucking true. beautiful. That is true. That's funny. I didn't even think about that. I, I, uh, I delivered, uh, across the street from there when I worked for hospice, um, for, for a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean. That was a lot there, man. But this is this is that's really interesting. That's why I wanted to have you on because I knew I, I didn't. I mean, you're related to a guy who was the fucking mayor of Sterling Heights, you know. Well, like, and then I, my
1: great aunt was the first female vice president of the UAW. Really? Yeah. So this whole strike thing's really interesting to me.
0: So you were basically like you were a perfect candidate to do what you do to to because you have you have connections to the city. You have you've lived in the city, you know, and and you you've been around it your whole, your whole life and you are, you have the media background as well. So this was, it makes perfect sense that this is what you're doing now. And you're just getting started as well. You're only two years into the thing full time.
1: So, I mean, I didn't think about it that way, but sure. I just did what I, it's like, as I grew up, I did what I was supposed to do.
0: You did what you had to do. Right. I just had to right. do what
1: I did, what I had to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, there's, uh, I'm looking at my questions here. Um, I don't I wanted to get back to like you know how you got to from from the the
1: apartment and and, and did you go to college or did you No you... so what happened to me was I actually had the fortunate opportunity I got picked up my I, I floor managed my first broadcast at Channel 4 News when I was 18 years old. So a floor manager is an associate director and so you basically keep the trains running on time and I was terrible at that job. Mm-hmm. Um I learned a lot. But I was terrible at it. I also knew that like that's where I learned that news, the way that it was traditionally done, and yes, this was like twenty years ago, but it's a production line. It's a production line with like business goals in mind and to get these things out the door. And like it's it's like working on a factory of creativity. But the factory is you've got to turn out this widget that is the news every day. And I these the people who do it, God God bless them for doing that grind. It's like Hard. Especially nowadays. It's yeah. a hard grind. I can't even imagine nowadays. Like I've we I've talked to a variety of TV folks over the years and like and radio folks. And they're doing, you know, we'll catch up at up at the Mackinac Policy Conference or whatever. Folks are doing five, six, seven long stories. Like they're doing all these stories and you you lose the context. Mm-hmm. And you know why they're doing all those stories? We're gonna circle right back and bring it back to the internet and the algorithm and Having to just feed the beast. Mm-hmm. Get the clicks. Get the, right. because the clicks pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing. Like anytime you see something that's fucked up, look at the economic incentive behind it. So, and look at the personal and in, in economic incentive. So let me, let me give you an example. Netflix and Blockbuster. This is like the traditional example everybody uses. Why the hell didn't Blockbuster change? Blah, blah, blah. Netflix, right? So imagine you're an employee at Blockbuster though. And your bonus is tied to what you push out the store. Your 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 entire existence and what you're rewarded for financially is not change. It's all the incentives that you had before. No one within the organization is economically incented to change the organization and save it. Mm-hmm. And so it is doomed to fail.
0: Isn't that? I think it was Upton Sinclair had that famous quote where he was like, "It's difficult to convince a man of something if his paycheck." Uh- demands or requires him to not understand it or it's
1: something to the effect of that. There is something like that. And I see it all the time. That's where that's where businesses don't turn the corner. Mm -hmm. So many businesses don't turn the corner because they have something good and they don't they can't see around the corner and they can't see that maybe they don't have the skills to get there Mm -hmm. or maybe that they you know, like this was really good. And that's the thing is that like having to change doesn't mean what you did in the past was bad. A lot of people take that personally. It's it's more about okay, this is what served us till now. This is great. And we're going to continue to build on this, but we need to turn the corner. There's other things and other opportunities. And I have, and you have to have the humility to be like, I need to step that up. And, and most people, they don't have it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like you guys, you, you said you, you put the happy hour to rest. Cause you were like, this isn't working the way we want it to. And oh, we loved
1: it. And it was great. But I also like, it's one of the reasons why you nowadays, like we don't do more than one drink before any show. <laughs> well, no, because nobody like, Like if you want to take it to the next level, this is something that uh, Roman Marr says from 99% Invisible. You ever hear that podcast? No. You got to check it out. It is definitely like not a conversational podcast. It's more of a narrative podcast. But it, it kind of shows you how design affects our lives. And one of the things he says about his show and he does the show for a podcast and he also does versions that are on national public radio is that every minute you take off of a podcast that isn't worth it, you're saving one minute per listener that you have. So if you have a thousand listeners and you're taking off of a minute of of useless bullshit, now I'm not saying like bullshitting isn't fun and it can be good and it can be entertaining, but you've got to really ask yourself, Is am I bringing value to the listener? Every minute you take off, you're saving, if you have a thousand listeners, you're saving a thousand minutes of human time. Think about how powerful a statement like that is mm-hmm. to, to focus what you're doing and do the show prep and do – like we pre-interview our guests whenever we can. We pre-interview them. Are they going to be good on the air? There are some people – and we made this mistake early and we've started to really learn from it. An early mistake we made, oh, this person is the expert per se, but then they were terrible on the microphone and they weren't able to deliver the story. So it will be like, all right, well, we'll take clips from there. Then we'll edit it together with narrative and then we'll push it out the door so that it can really be clear to the listener. Mm-hmm. And that extra level of of, of care because at the end of the day, you don't – like when you create work like this, like what you're doing, like what I'm doing, this is not your show. This is not – Daily Detroit is not my show. It is your listener show. It is my listener's show. Daily Detroit is my listener show. We work for them. Hmm. That's how I look at it. Like I, th- we work for them every day.
0: That's that's that is interesting. I've heard. Uh, you know who Mike Doty is? He's a, he used to be in a band called Soul Coughing. He's a musician. I've heard the name. Yeah, he's a singer songwriter now. But he uh, he said something very similar, and this is a while ago now. But he uh, he put out an album called uh, uh, Golden Delicious, and it was very poppy and very fluffy, and his fans hated it. So his next album was what he was good at. It was stripped down acoustic music, and he said. And in response to that, people were like, you know, this album is really different from your last one. And he's like, well, yeah, my fans hated the last one, and I basically work for them, so I have to give them what they want to hear, you know. So there you go. The yeah, same, uh, yeah, same thing. Um, but uh, I, I my last question, I want I wanted to ask you, um, what are other than and you said ninety nine percent invisible is the one you just brought up? Is yeah ninety nine percent invisible. What yeah. other podcasts do you listen to, or do you recommend? Oh geez, I should have opened try. up.
1: I should have opened up my. Uh, I should have opened up my app. Um. So, podcast that I enjoy, I think Kyra Swisher is a great interviewer. I think she can be a little pushy sometimes, but she does it in the right places when she which is I love. I like an interviewer that sometimes is a little pushy because people need it. People need to be like asked questions about what they do, and Kara Swisher does a good job with that, so she does uh recode and pivot and a few other things um I of course listen to the Daily from The New York Times on a, you know whenever I can catch it. Ah, uh, geez, there's so many shows that I I wish I had my app out. Because I have like a whole like I have all my my top things that I, I do. And now that you're you're asking me, I'm kind of uh blinking a little bit. Of course, uh Joe Rogan, Star Talk, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I have a very large nerdy streak. Uh Mark you know, some of the shows from uh, NPR like uh, Marketplace, like Marketplace, uh, it's a evening uh, ec- economic show. Mm-hmm. Kai Rizdahl is an amazing host and somebody who's great at unpacking things. Of course, American Weiner because <laughs> of course – and thank you for – by the way, and thank you for having me on the – the episode that is just before the most important episode. Well, it's, I'm glad that I'm just one behind. Well, 100. I I uh I'm I didn't
0: plan it or anything. This is just how it happened, but uh I, you know, no, I'd look at 99, you know, you got dubs, man. Like this is this 99 <laughs> is just as uh just as important as the as the, the centennial
1: episode so. I feel like it's a good ho- I feel like it's a good hockey number, a good sports number. Fuck yeah, man. I mentioned man. always aggravated. I do enjoy that one. Uh geez, I'm trying to think about all the other um, you know, there's a great daily show out of Toronto. Sometimes I catch just because I enjoy the city. It's a beautiful town called only in Toronto. They do a good job. Uh, there, there's, you know what? Here's a podcast I kind of enjoy and I, I, I enjoy it because I don't know why, but it's called the podcast rodeo. It's this guy, Dave Jackson, and he reviews your podcast.
0: Oh, really? The podcast rodeo. Huh? Yeah. The
1: podcast rodeo show. And it's usually very short and I kind of like it and I'm just going to be guilty pleasure. Like I kind of like the guilty pleasure when it goes off the rails.
0: Oh, when somebody has a terrible show yes, and he just I starts kind of, ripping it apart. I
1: have to admit that like I'm like, oh, this is really like but obviously it's like in a learning way and like it's constructive, but you're just kind of like, ooh, he didn't Oh wow. He didn't hold back there. Yeah. He didn't hold back there. That wasn't that wasn't something that uh yeah, there were no 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 holds barred on any of that stuff. Have you submitted Daily Detroit to him to review? I'm scared. <laughs> I fully admit I should you know i'm I'm actually friends with him on Facebook so I should i don't know him I've never met him but it was one of those things that you end up friending him and uh i feel like i should i should do the i should do the thing and face the music that'll be
0: yeah i mean you guys have already been at it long enough it's not like his review if i mean first of all i doubt he would hey, not like it because, but you know
1: what my favorite review I ever got from somebody hmm. it was uh you're nasally and annoying but well informed <laughs>
0: You know who you sound like? It, it it occurred to me as I was listening to you talk. You kinda of sound like Mark Hamill when you when you talk. You know if you ever just listen to Mark, you're nowhere near as old as Mark Hamill, but your voices are very your cadence and, and just your speech patterns are, are similar. I'll have
1: to I'll have to think about that. You know, I I think that a, a I'll think about that and decide if that's a compliment or a teardown. Number. It's it's meant as a compliment. <laughs> it's, it's Mark
0: Hamill is a badass. So.
1: Okay, good, good. I'll take it. I'll take it then. I'll take it.
0: Um. So Jeremiah, thanks so much for coming on, man. Believe it or not, we already we've blown past uh, the hour, so we're, uh, we're we're doing good here. That's uh, that's An absolute always a good pleasure,
1: thing. Alex. I you know I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing and uh, keep uh, getting people stories. That's that's what we're here to do.
0: Absolutely, man. Well, uh, I will be off next week. I'm going to be uh, up north uh, working. I'll be uh, taking a job um uh, for the week, but uh, I will be back in two weeks. My guest will be playwright Rachel Burke. Um, she's going to tell us about, uh, some plays that she's written and, uh, the acting she's done and, uh, more, so it'll be another theater centric podcast. So looking forward to talking to her, um, everybody, I will see you in two weeks. This has been American Winer on podcast. Detour-